right, well, uh, before we get started, um, you see this graphic behind me, this essential mission. And I want you to know as a church, we don't just say this because it's the right thing to say or the cool thing to say or the proper thing to affirm as those who follow Jesus. Uh, We talk about this because it really is central to our identity, right? Why we are in the community we're in. And I say all of that because one of the things we've been doing internally within the leadership is we've been looking at how we can more effectively do mission. Right, Because this is our agenda. We want everybody in our church to be missional theologians. Right, We want to be knowers of God, studiers of God, lovers of God, and then take that into our world in a way that is uh, real, that is effective, that really touches people where they're at, uh, that kind of thing. And so as we've been praying about this and working this through, we said, you know, we need to throw way more weight and energy behind the seriousness that we feel when it comes to doing mission. And and, and so with that, we said, well, you know, how much do do we really put toward uh, making sure that all of us, myself included, are well-equipped for the task? And how much do we put into really making sure that there is someone to guard the gate of that priority and agenda? Because again, it's really easy to say, hey, we're really big on outreach, but then it's really easy to not put a lot of effort and energy into that from a church leadership perspective. And so as we pondered that, prayed about it, worked it through, we decided that the best thing to do was to make sure we had a pastor whose sole agenda, purpose, and calling for our church is mission. And so from that, what we decided to do is go to Pastor Scott, who has a huge heart for the lost, a huge heart for mission, and we said, hey man, would you take this over for us as a church? And uh, because of his heart, because of his passion for the lost, he totally grabbed onto that and said, yep, I want to do this. And so he has already been working like a crazy man, figuring out what we need, how we need to get there, what we need to do as far as accomplishing that task. And so in a lot of ways, we said we're putting a full staff position behind the idea of mission. Now, what that means for the way things currently work is that Scott, while he will oversee our student ministries program, he will not be intimately involved in that like he has been. And yet God has blessed us with that. And so uh, some of you know of one of our resident pastors, Wes Feltz. Uh, He's going to oversee junior high. And then Sterling Monroe, he's been around with us for a while now. And uh, he is going to oversee high school. And then both of those gentlemen are going to fall under Pastor Scott. Uh, But it's a very exciting thing, very exciting times for us. And again, I know for me personally, I am eager to see what God is going to do with this. And I already can sense it as uh, Scott holds us as elders accountable, holds me accountable to making sure we're doing mission and we're on point with that. I'm just excited to see what God is going to do with that uh, in our future. And so uh, those are some of the changes. Right now, we're also praying about the idea of down the road, maybe later in the year, uh, adding another pastor to our team. Uh, That'll be something that you all will be asked to affirm. If we get to that point, we'll keep you posted. This is potentially later in the year, but somebody who would focus more on regroups, education, development. In other words, Scott's missional. This other person would be the theologian's arm. Uh, But boy, we're praying about things. We're asking God to do big things. And we're excited about where he's taking us and about prioritizing what we say are our priorities. And so uh, all of this, again, is related to the fact that we believe mission for the church is essential. It's not an option. It's not nice. It's not clever. It's mandatory. 
It's mandatory. So we're excited about how God is shaping things up in our midst. So uh, that's kind of the big announcement for the day. Again, you can be praying for Scott as he's figuring some of this out more and more, how he can help us do this more and more, and uh, really to intersect the gospel with people who need it, which is also the topic of the day. So with that, let's go ahead and pray together. We'll get ourselves saddled up for what Jesus has. Jesus, I thank you so much again for your love and your grace. I thank you for your word that directs us and guides us. I thank you for the gospel that has power. I mean, that's the thing I love. It's like, I don't have to muster power. I don't have to convince anybody. I just simply let you do the work, you do the power, you do the saving. Uh, We just get to share. And I pray that we would trust the power of the gospel. I pray that we would trust the work of your spirit. I pray that we would be uh, proud of you, Jesus, in all of life. I pray that we will bring transformed lives to the table as an accent to what the gospel has done in our person. And so we look to you to teach us today. We look to you to inspire us today. Uh, We look to you to open up our minds to what it means to, to really be missional in the truest sense of the word. And so we love you, praise you, and thank you, Jesus, in your good and awesome name. Amen. All right, well, uh, we have been in this series that we have entitled uh, Essential for a while, and today is the last day of that series. And so we have looked at Essential Gospel, we have looked at Essential Church, we've looked at Essential Design, and then we started into Essential Mission. Last week was Mission in the Marketplace, right? Bringing the Gospel to the place where we work or volunteer, where we're students or athletes, whatever it is. But today we look at a broader thing, which is Mission in Culture, also known as Bringing Jesus into the Heart of society, all right? Bringing Jesus into the heart of society. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Titus chapter 2. Also, I don't know, uh, Shane or somebody, if there's more light we can bring out there. It looks a little dark. Is it dark for you guys to see your Bible? It looks a little dark. So if we can turn those up a little bit, that'd be great as people are heading to the book of Titus. Actually, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3. I might have said 2. You want to make sure you get to Titus chapter 3, bringing Jesus into the heart of society. Now, As I say that, uh, I I know that many of us will say, yes, that's exactly right. Even the little uh, announcement I gave, we would say, yes, praise Jesus. The mission of the church, the job of evangelicals is to bring the gospel to the world. And I think very few in this room, if you follow Jesus, would disagree with that statement. We all know that that is what we're called to do. That is part of the purpose of the church, not the only purpose, but a very lofty and important purpose of the church. And so we're going to affirm that. But what I find pastorally and as I look at culture, I I, I notice that it seems that at times, uh, even though though we say, I, I know that's how we're supposed to operate, some of the ways in which we seek to accomplish that, um, I think may get in the way of the gospel more than enhances the gospel. Instead of really ensuring that the gospel is the big idea that everybody hears about, uh, there are times where there's other ideas, not bad ideas, in fact, even good ideas, important things, but they cloud or they obscure the message of the gospel. And so with that, we, we kind of get a little bit lost. And part of this is an identity crisis for us as evangelical Christians, those who follow Jesus. And I think that identity issue is related to basically understanding how we're looking at the world. Are we looking at the world from the lens of exodus or are we looking at the world from the lens of exiles exodus 
or exiles. And this is a really important point. I mean, I hope you capture how critical this is because those two different perspectives or agendas drive much of what we then do as believers in the world on mission bringing the gospel. I mean, think about Exodus. Exodus is about leaving pagan culture. We're getting out of this place. But exile is about living in pagan culture with distinctive. If you go back to the Exodus, the idea is we're leaving pagan culture, we're going to go into another pagan culture, and we're going to burn it to the ground. We're going to destroy the cities and take our promised land. That's Exodus. But exile says we're going to Babylon, and as we go there, our job isn't to burn down the cities. Our job is literally, it says in Jeremiah, to pray for our city and the welfare of the place that we reside. It's pagan, yeah. But we strive for its good, even though we're in a pagan context. And we stand out out for God, even in that pagan context. See, that's the difference between exile and exodus. And and I think it's really important because even if you get more fundamental, uh, what you see in the exodus is that God establishes law and law is going to rule. But in the exile, God knows that law has no leverage. So instead, it's this idea of influencing, which is what you see in Daniel, which you see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't bow their knee to pagan things, but anything that wasn't requiring them to sin, they were very helpful on. They served the king and they served their culture and they did right things in right ways because they knew that they couldn't impose anything, but they can influence much. And so I say all of that because, again, the heart that I have for the church and for us as a missional church is to look with eyes of the exiles, not with eyes of the exodus. Not saying we're getting out, not saying we're going to force change, but rather saying, no, man, I just live in a culture that is estranged from God. I live in a culture that does not exalt the gospel. I live in a, live in a culture that, frankly, let's be honest, is not a Christian culture anymore. It's just not. When I hear pundits on the news that say, we're a Christian nation, I'm like, not anymore. We're post-Christian. We're post And increasingly more so. And I don't think the issue is to say, so we need to start doing things to drive it back to what it was. No, I I, I think it's different. Because really, even if you look at the foundations of our nation and our culture, people say we're Judeo-Christian. No, we're really Judeo. Most of the foundations are Old Testament ideas, not new. You don't find Jesus or Christ in the Bill of Rights. You don't find Jesus or Christ in the Constitution. You don't find a lot of talk of Jesus. A lot of talk of law. A lot of talk of the Old Testament. Not a great deal of the new. So in that sense, even what we want to bring isn't some enrichment of the old days, but it's something more centered. Something that dumps straight into what the gospel's all about. Now, if I try to analyze this, this idea of exodus versus exiles, and, and, and kind of the climate that, that seems to get promoted uh, sort of in maybe the media as far as evangelicals, I, I, I think it first starts with the first problem. And the first problem is that as our culture began to more and more go post-Christian, right? We left the 50s and 60s and then everything started to get really crazy because mom and dad discovered pot, right? So um, 
free love and open thinking and challenge the, the establishment, all those things that started to happen, right? Uh, and, and then with that, the Christian community, seeing that shift and that change, they began to grow angry and frustrated at the shift. They saw this departure from traditional values. They saw a departure from the Christian ethic that they were reared with. And so they started to kind of revolt or react against it. And so it was said in phrases like, the liberal media, the liberal establishment, liberal politics. And by liberal, they mean an expletive is what they mean, right? So it was like the enemy, right? And that still is sort of a tone that exists in the popular mainstream. Now, I'm not saying all of us in this room hold this tone. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that's the reputation that was born. And from that anger and from that frustration and feeling like we were losing our ground, what happened for evangelicals is they said, we need to fight fire with fire. So it went from saying, man, the gospel can change everything to saying, well, the gospel, we need the gospel, we preach the gospel, but we really need to make sure that we hold the immorality at bay and we push morality. And so we started turning to all sorts of great secular mediums. We started pushing picketing and protesting and petitions and boycotts. We started emphasizing uh, legislation and politics that would come against the liberal politic that we uh, were struggling with. And I'll be honest with you, all of those things are secular. Now, I'm not saying they're bad or wrong. By the end, you probably go, that's exactly what he's saying. But for now, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is they're secular. They leverage economics... They leverage law, they leverage force, they leverage a sense of culture war. So instead of the culture being mission field, it becomes battlefield. And the very people we are called to bring the gospel to, we find ourselves fighting instead of reaching. Right. I mean, th that starts to be what shapes up. And it's not like that world then looks at us and says, wow, you guys have a message that I need. They go, no, no, you have many, many messages. A lot of which I find offensive. And then in that, they, they miss the real primary message that we hold dear. And see, the problem when we do that as Christians is that we're, again, using secular leveraging tools for a deeper spiritual problem, which is sin. I mean, there's no way we can curb or combat sin in our culture by simply saying, I'm going to use a bunch of secular argument to deal with your sin. It doesn't offer liberty. It doesn't offer freedom. It doesn't offer a real solution. In fact, I think that drives to the deeper problem. If this is what we're known for predominantly, then it obscures the message of the gospel because of all the other messages being communicated and promoted. And it's hard for a lost and unredeemed world to then look at us and go, oh, okay, I see that that agenda is a secondary one, and that one's a secondary one, and that one's a secondary one, but the gospel's the primary one. They don't look at it that way. What they actually look at is the loudest message must be the most important message. And I think often the loudest message is not, hey, did you know? 
God came into this world. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we would ever believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they would be saved. And their heart of stone and sin would be removed and a heart of flesh would be put in its place because God desires to reconcile us to Him and from that transform us by grace. See, that message... I don't believe is the primary one the world thinks of when they think of evangelical Christians. It's just not. It's all the other things that have obscured the playing field. And what it's caused in the world is then to look at us as evangelicals and say, your relationship to us is adversarial. As opposed to, uh, you hurt for us, you break for us, you love us. See, that's part of the deeper problem that we have to address. It's at times I, I, I listen to uh, certain radio personalities or television personalities or uh, Christian personalities. And, and as I listen to them, and I'm like, man, if I was a person that wasn't convinced, right? I'm an unconvinced, unbelieving person. And I, I started to listen. There would be a real part of me that would say, I think you resent us more than you love us. I think you resent the lost world more than you hurt for it. Right? And and I understand. Because what happened was, is we feel certain rights are being taken, certain privileges are vanishing, a certain tone is evaporating in our world, and so we want to push back naturally. But does the lost world, the unconvinced world, the curious world, go, um, you love us? Or is it, you're irritated at us? See, this then drives me to what I think is the deepest of all problems in this scenario, which is Satan loves this. He loves it. If what he can ultimately do in all of this is cast a hazy film of issues out into the the, the stratosphere of culture so that it's constantly foggy, constantly gray, constantly smoggy, and nobody can see the glorious light of the gospel. And so he's great with this. He's great with social debate, moral debate. He's great with the fights between conservatives and liberals. He's great with wanting to see, you know, religious rights stomped in one sense and then fought for in another sense. He loves that because, again, nobody's preaching the gospel when that happens. And he says, that's awesome. That's what I want. Go to war, fight. Talk and chatter. Have your cause. You know, I was thinking about that this week, this idea of even having a cause, because I go, you know, that's the wrong word. We think causes are going to fix things. No, causes are really symptoms. They're not causes, they're symptoms. And they're symptoms of the most fundamental thing we're talking about. They're symptoms of sin. If we're looking at the landscape of our culture and we're saying, what's the big problem? Don't get lost into what the big problem is, whatever's, you know, way up here and obvious. The real problem is a sin problem. In fact, there in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, this is what Paul says. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I mean, Paul does not look at the world and say, it's fine. He doesn't. Here he says, oh man, the world is broken. He says it starts off foolish and it ends as haters. That's a serious problem, but that's the problem we face in our culture. When you flip on the news and you see some protests somewhere, you see picketers clashing, you look at the social issues of the day and you go, well, that's the problem there. It's the gay agenda. That's the problem there. It's the pro-choice agenda. That's the problem there. Rich people wanting to keep their money. It doesn't matter what party you're in, what view you hold. That's the problem there. War and spending money on war. That's the problem. Whatever it is, here's the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is we start off foolish and we end up hating. And no amount of legislation, no amount of constitutional amendment, no amount of fighting for exemption rights as a church is going to change the source problem. None. When, when, when that fundamentally happens, uh, what that is is either reform or revolution. And what reform or revolution, they're, they're different, but they're still held by the same basic idea. Reform is I will use law to control others. Revolution is I will do it with a gun. But whether it's reform or revolution, the idea is the same, which is there's some really sinister thing that's happened in culture, so I will use lesser sinister things to topple the more sinister thing. I will use lesser sins to deal with the greater sin. But then here's what happens in time. Those lesser sins, they metastasize into the greater sin until somebody else comes in and brings another revolution, another reform. You know what humanity's been doing for centuries? Revolution and reform. Why? Because society breaks down all the time. And so we use sinful messages and sinful means and kind of this secularization to force change. I mean, that's just what humanity fundamentally does, right? Because humanity is sinful. But as those who follow Jesus, as the evangelical community, and I use that word comfortably, um, our calling, our mission, our heart, our hunger should not simply be, oh, to have reform. And certainly shouldn't be, oh, for revolution. Right? It shouldn't be that because ultimately, like I keep saying, that is not to be our primary concern. See, our concern should go deeper. Because here's the deal. It doesn't matter if somebody is a patriot or a traitor. It doesn't matter if they're a pornographer or a physician, a conservative or a liberal, a soldier or a slacker, a constitutionalist or a socialist, a pro-lifer or a pro-choicer. It doesn't matter if they're an industrialist or an environmentalist, they're gay or straight, married or living together, a cop or a criminal, up and coming or down and out, a successful executive or somebody who is a welfare recipient. doesn't matter if they're hardworking or hardly working. doesn't matter if they believe in gun rights or gun control. doesn't matter if they live on Wall Street or Main Street. Without Jesus, they're all going to inhabit hell together. That's what matters. And as soon as we look at that list and we go, ah, but some of those, uh, they're better than others. Not without Jesus. 
not without Jesus. See, that's the big idea, right? And that's Paul's point. Yeah, the world is foolhardy and broken and it will use that and leverage that against each other to try to solve its problems and it will never stop. And then Paul goes a step further and says, and we were once like that. Until verse 4, he says, until the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He goes on to talk about what we've been given and granted. And so from that, Paul's clear. The world is broken, the world is sinful, starts off foolish, ends up hating, but there's salvation. But we were changed. So it's not reform. It's not revolution. What we should long for, strive for, fight for, is redemption. It's redemption. That should be the marquee of the believer. I fight for redemption. I pray for redemption. I long for redemption. I'm hungry for redemption. I'm not satisfied until I see redemption. Because that's what the world needs. Redemption. In fact, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul said, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, which is not reform, it's not revolution, it's not pushing for law, it's pushing for grace. Use the best amount of your time in right ways. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. We, as followers of Christ, should be a welcomed contribution to our culture more than a critical contribution. We really should. Because oddly enough, we're the ones that have the one answer that changes everything. Now, some of you may say, I don't believe that. Then I, I, man, I can't help you. I really believe the gospel is the power of God. The gospel changes everything. Everything else is a lesser tool. Everything is. Now, in that, I'm not saying sorry, so all we do is gospel. We say nothing about anything ever. That's not my point. My point is, where do we put our trust? Where do we put our faith? Where do we put our passions? Because so often, I listen to Christians, and they put far more passion behind political stuff than the gospel. And it's like, why? Do you really think if you make sure that one person gets into office that our culture is going to change? Who are you pushing for? Right? Who are you pushing for? I mean, it's interesting even to watch the, the, the Republican process right now because if there's anything that's overwhelming is that nobody's terribly excited about any of them. Right? Nobody's going like, oh man, that Newt will change everything. With a name like Newt, how can you? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, and then we get Mitt. I mean, they can even get normal names. You know what I mean? So, Nobody's looking at these guys saying they're going to change everything. Who ran on everything's going to change? The dude that changed nothing. That dude. Right? Because again, it's just, it's just spinning plates. 
It's just using secular means to secular ends to try to keep evil at bay, but it doesn't bring true, lasting change and good. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel. That's why I keep bringing it back to that. In fact, if anything, it means for us as believers, we are to have a redemptive worldview. That we look at everything just like this. Everything is through the lens of the gospel. Everything is through the lens of Jesus can change things. Not this politic or that politic or this guy or that guy. Those are nice. Those are interesting. I think sometimes they're more hobbies for Christians than anything. Right? I mean, it's funny, you know, I'm not dogging anything, you know, but if I preach for an hour, people are like, oh my gosh, you went so long, but you listen to Rush Limbaugh for three hours a day, are you kidding me? Really? 15 hours versus one? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I know Rush is cool and all, but still, if you listen. All right, so. But this is where it gets back to letting the main thing be the main thing. And the main thing is a redemptive worldview. And when I say this, what I'm, what I'm not necessarily talking about when I think about a redemptive worldview is I'm not saying we need to be a team of moral and decent people that are just out in the world. What I'm saying is that we need to be this, this, um, this catalyst of change by way of authentically living out what the implications of the gospel are. Which is not that we're running around saying, hey, I'm perfect. If anything, again, what's one of the creed points of our church? We are a group of imperfect people redeemed by a perfect God. We're imperfect. The world needs to understand that we don't look at them and say, hey, man, we got to figure it out. You don't. Hey, we're more together. You're not. Hey, we're moral. You're not moral. We're the moral majority. They're the immoral minority. Hey, we don't do that. What we do is, you know what? If it wasn't for the grace of God, I myself would be foolish, ending in hatred. And I'm still working that out. As a saved person, I'm still working out what it means to not be so foolish and not be hating and everything in between. But come on the journey with me, right? Be a part of the movement of imperfect people who have been redeemed by the perfect God. That's what we're getting at. That's the redemptive worldview. So how does this play out according to Paul? We're going to have three points this morning. All right? The first point is this. Paul pushes to have a redemptive politic. He actually pushes to have this redemptive politic. Again, his focus is a missional focus. Everything hinges on the gospel for Paul, right? And so from that, he writes to these Christians on Crete, and he says this to them. He says, remind them, and this is to Titus, to then preach to them. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Now, Paul starts off by using a very simple word, remind. Which means he said it to them before. Somebody said this to them before and they forgot, so they need to be reminded. Why is this? Because the people of Crete are rebellious. They're rebels. In other words, they're much like people that live in Duval and Woodenville and Carnation and Monroe. Right? I mean, we are, man. You know, I mean, first of all, we live out in the western United States. That makes us rebels, man. We settled this place with a gun, you know? So, we're rebels in the west. And then you put us in Seattle, and the further we get away from water, the more rebellious we are. 
right? You know what I mean? Like you leave the sound, a little bit of rebellion. You get up here against kind of the foothills, man. We're rebels. If you have property, you know you're a rebel. You know it, man. On your property, you shoot your gun from your porch. You don't care, right? Yeah, you burn your trash in your yard. You don't care. Yeah, you start cutting down whatever tree you want in your yard. You don't care. You're cheering for rebellion right now. When a car comes by that says King County on the side, you give it the stink eye. That's what I'm talking about, right? Rebels. Rebels. We're like, yeah, we love that rebellion. Oh, my goodness. And this goes out to the world on video. All right, so... um, That redemption church needs redemption is what they need. So, um, yeah, you know what it is? And so we get rebellion, and they had rebellion too. And so Paul has to remind them, man, there's this bigger picture to keep in mind. Because it's so easy to love rebellion. And so he gives them that encouragement. I remind you, he says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, now here's the thing. Um, Rome... um, was not pleasant. In fact, I even go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says something similar. He says, Be subject to the Lord's sake uh, for every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors uh, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, as Paul writes what he writes, as Peter writes what he writes, understand, Rome whacked. I mean, Rome was far more whack than anything today. The emperor thought he was God. That's a problem. I mean, if you're a believer, your emperor thinks he's a God. Later down the road, when Peter writes, for example, the emperor was killing Christians because he was God and they would not worship him. They were perverse, they were idolatrous, they were a mess. And what does Paul and Peter say? He says, submit to, honor, and obey those guys. I mean, this is substantial, this is hard, this is a challenge. But again, he's got something in mind, so let's break this down. First of all, he says to honor. Now, what I don't believe is implied necessarily with honor is the idea that you have to have some ingrained respect of said person. But you have to be respecting of said person. Right? It's not like you go, oh man, they're the greatest thing ever since I sliced bread, which I don't know why we choose sliced bread, but we do. Um, you, You don't have to do that. You don't have to just sing their praises all the time. You don't have to do that. But you know what it does call us to? Not just singing things of criticism all the time. Not showing disrespect or dishonor. It's the same word used of how we honor our parents. The same word. So whatever you think your kids should do to you, you should do to the rulers above you. Now you're going, nah, nah, change that, dude. You know, um... But it's, it's a disposition, right? More than that, Paul says, hey, it's not just about honor. It's about submission and obedience. Now, does this mean that we as Christians must obey when uh, the authorities over us say we want you to sin? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it means is even in your conscientious objection, you look at it as an opportunity for redemptive purpose. 
is not just, nope. But it's how you're going to turn that, I cannot because I fear God more than men. How are you going to convert it into that message? That's the real redemptive message. Like when, when Peter and the other apostles were getting thrown down on by the Jewish leadership, uh, they said, stop preaching Christ. And Peter says, hey man, we can't do that because again, we're looking at God more than we're looking at you. And if it means we go to prison, we go to prison. It means we go to our death, we go to our death because Jesus is first. Other than that, if it wasn't something sinful or whatever else, it's like, yeah, all right, just just follow the law. Do right things. Don't be rebellious. And so when Paul is saying this, I, I don't believe what he's really doing in this is saying, you know what, just, just kind of take a low-level approach. Fly under the radar so life goes well with you. I, I really don't believe that that's his focus. It's not low profile, it's high priority. And his high priority is, listen, don't let anything get in the way of the one thing that matters. Don't let your own personal preference, don't let your rebelliousness, don't let your own attitudes get in the way of the one message that can in fact change everything. So that's, that's really his goal, right? It's about influence. It's about keeping the one thing the one thing. And if they keep the one thing, the one thing, and they live as an intentional, redemptive community, Paul goes, man, you're going to get all sorts of inroads. You're going to get all sorts of opportunity. You're going to be able to do things. And if you look at the early church, the early church never bought into revolution. It never bought into reform. It didn't pick ridiculous fights. It didn't say, but he's a pagan, and so we're going to oppose the emperor at every turn. They didn't do that. You know what they did? They mined in their own business. They worked with their own hands. They preached the gospel person to person. They got their butt handed to them for it. They died for Christ in example still, not cursing their killers, but praying for them. And by 350 A.D., the gospel had transformed an entire culture because they didn't fight for wrong things but one thing one thing it's kind of like the old adage do one thing well and you'll do well that's what they did and and they knew the, the primary issue of the one thing the people are estranged and sinful and the only thing that will fix that is jesus Super clean, super easy. Play it cool and wait to share the one thing that matters. And so I think about that in the current climate where sometimes we pick lesser battles at the cost of the war. Right? And, and we lose the main thing. And so I know probably some of you will get uncomfortable with some of these examples, but I, but I use them. I think they're just sort of helpful. But let's take the, the recent issue in our state, which is the gay marriage issue. And I want you to think about this for just, just a minute. And on this front, I want you to answer for yourself what a win would be on that topic. Is the win... Um, we keep gay marriage from happening in our state. Is that the win? Or is the win that God would change their hearts? What's the win? Is the win we oppose and they're still in their sin? Or is the win, how do I get the gospel to change them? That's the win. 
right? Now, you're going to walk out of here and say, oh, so he's taking the position. He's pro-gay marriage. No, I'm not. I'm not. What I'm saying is, that's not the win. And what I'm saying is, sometimes we fight things so hard that the very people we're wanting to reach think we hate them. They think we hate them. Right? Why not? Anytime a business says we're going to give them benefits, we boycott it. Of course. What's the win? I look right now in the media with the religious exemption issue. Right? And there's this kind of fight going on about, you know, should churches have to comport to these things that are going on? And I look at all the politics of it and I don't care. And I go, what's the win there? Is the win that eventually the government is forced to tolerate the church? Or is the win that our culture and our people would see the church as a blessing and that they would want to protect it? What's the win? Right? What's the win? Take a different topic. The abortion topic. What's the win? That it's illegal or it's unthinkable? What's the win? See, all of these things are complicated, and I'm not going to pretend that I can get up here today and say, all right, now let's unpack every one of those topics and let's solve it. I'm not even saying there can't be difference in discord uh, in relationship to these. I'm asking us to ponder one question, which is what is the win? What builds bridges versus what burns them? What do you believe will most change people? Do you want to see God change people or do you want to see them banished? Do you want to live in exile or do you want to live in exodus? Do you want to burn it all to the ground that is just them Canaanites? Or do you want to see Babylon redeemed? Right? That's the question that every one of us has to wrestle with on these topics. And when I look, I go, I don't think the lost world needs more rhetoric. I think they need Jesus. They need Jesus. There's plenty of rhetoric, man. It's not hard to find. It's on 24 hours a day, seven days a week on higher stations on my satellite dish. It's perpetual. It's constant. It's permanent. Lots of rhetoric. What people need is redemption. They need a heart transplant. So Paul says, have a redemptive politic. Keep the main thing the one main thing. Only one thing will make the real difference. Only one. The second thing that Paul encourages is a redemptive posture. A redemptive posture, he says, they are to be ready for every good work. And I love this. He doesn't just say, hey, do good. He says, you need to be perpetually ready for the opportunities to come so you can do a good work. Now, what does this look like? Well, I, I got a couple of slides so I can show you what being ready for a good work is. Let's bring up that first picture. This kid right here. This kid, he's looking toward where the ball's coming from. He looks ready. He's got his glove. He's kind of positioned well. That's ready for the good play. Let's bring up the next part of this. That kid, not so much. That kid is not ready, man. He's not ready at all. Now, I don't know if you can tell from the slide, but the kid's actually pouring dirt out of his glove. The reason for this is the next slide. He's digging a hole, right? This kid is not ready. If you have ever had your kids play t-ball, you've watched t-ball, or you've coached t-ball, you have seen cats herded to no avail, right? Um, Just what it is. Not ready for the good play. Not ready for the good work. So we are to be ready 
ready for the good works when they come our direction. Right? Ready to do it. And there's all sorts of ways, if you're really thinking in terms of being missional, where you can have your radar up all the time, where you're kind of thinking about that, like, you pray, Jesus, today, when something comes my way, let me jump on it and make it happen. Let me take advantage of that good work, that good opportunity. So, like in our community, man, more and more, we've been talking as a leadership about the need for good counseling in our community from a biblical perspective, because so many families are hurting. So many. So we go, man, there's an opportunity. We're going to start developing a counseling ministry as a church where we want lay people to be a part of the process. So when these opportunities arise, boy, we can meet the need. I think about other things in our community, such as when a snowstorm hits or a windstorm hits or a rainstorm hits or there's flooding or whatever plague that God places on Seattle. Um, right? When those things come, it's an opportunity you got a generator, bring everybody into your house. you got a chainsaw, move the trees out of the road. Whatever it is, all right? Good to the city, good to the community, which is a major part of what we do. I think about Acres of Diamonds, a ministry that's here in our community. Uh, there's a number of young men that need older men in their life to come in and bring encouragement and wisdom and guidance for life. They, they called us and said, we have six boys that need some men in their life. Man, what a good opportunity, Right? Because they go, we need this. And so we want to meet those things. Maybe regroups as redemptive groups, right? Where you're thinking in terms of how can our regroup contribute to our culture, to our neighborhood, to the friends that we have. Maybe it's random acts of kindness. Take the random acts of kindness week, turn it into 52 weeks. doesn't matter what it is. It's just looking to do the good, Right? And as you do the good, you do it with a specific goal, right? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. You do good works so that people can see those good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You always do it intentionally. It's not just, I'm a good person that does good things because that's the good thing to do. But you're a good person that does good things so you can point to God and that He can get the credit. It's showcasing Jesus. So that's why we have a redemptive posture. We're ready to do good and we showcase God as we do it. And then the third thing is a redemptive presence. A redemptive presence. Paul says, and this comes down to our character, he says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gracious, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In other words, Paul wants us to live in Pollyanna land. Thank you for that, Paul. Right? But that's, that's what he encourages. And all of this, they're hooks in the water. All right? They're hooks in the water. We're fishermen. We're fisherwomen. We fish. And to live these things out are hooks that believes the gospel is the one thing that changes everything. Right? So let's break these down real quick. First thing, speak evil of no one. In a constant climate of one-upsmanship, this is big. It's big. And I, and I think this exists at two levels, and I'm, I'm going to kind of get into one because it's sort of been the topic of the day. But, but I think especially because of where we live, right? We experience at times a little bit more of the clash between conservative and liberal, uh, just by nature of kind of, you know, our social climate. Uh, you grow up in the Bible Belt, there's really just one party. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, here, it's different. And from that, there's tension. And, and sometimes, in that tension, because we get impassioned about these issues, um, 
it, it, it can turn into, again, we're, we're more negative than positive, and we criticize people that others whom we're trying to reach uh, appreciate. And, and so this is where we need to be cautious, because again, in kind of the politic of the day, and because the leading voices seem to be so polar, um, it accelerates that problem. To where, no matter what happens, if they're the guy you like, you're in their camp. And if they're the guy you don't like, everything they do is bad. I mean, literally, like I just turn on the news, and I will take an hour, and I will flip back and forth between Fox and MSNBC, which is like tennis. Um, it is. It's just like, bum, 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 bum. And depending on who you're watching, right, it's like, you know, I go to Fox, there's Ann Coulter, and nothing the president can do is good. Nothing. Literally, if he walked on water tomorrow, she'd say, the guy can't swim. Nah. You know, and, right? Like, nothing he does is good. And then I watch Rachel Maddow, and nothing he does is bad. Everything's good, but those Republicans, oh man, they drink the blood of puppies and they want to have a Stalinist government. You know, and it's just like, oh, make it stop. Make it stop. So then when we jump into the dialogue and we start to sound negative and critical and condescending of uh, our leaders, and we start to, in essence, speak evil of them, uh, we, we might be erasing our opportunities for the gospel because the person's like, oh, you just sound like one of those, whatever you are. Far left, far right. It all gets characterized. It's silly anyway. And so we want to make sure we speak evil of no one. In fact, um, uh, I don't know, a few months ago, I was watching one of the best shows on television. 19 Kids and County. All right. Um, I love that show. I love it. It's like Bonanza with kids. So um, it's awesome. And, and can I tell you why I love it? Um, okay, here's, here's this family, the Duggars. Dad's name is Jim Bob, all right? Um, Jim Bob. That's a good Bible Belt Southern name. Jim Bob. Jim Bob ran for Congress, but he was so radically conservative, even in the Bible Belt, he couldn't win. Um, that's a tough belt, too. Um, so couldn't win, super conservative. They have 19 kids, which means I think they have opinions on birth control. And uh, so all the way around fit into a particular camp, no question. And they asked them, they said, so you you all went to Washington, D.C., and you went to the White House, and and so what do you think about the Obamas and President Obama? And I'm just waiting for, you know, like, point to the right field and, you know, just wag it out of the park. And they go, oh, man, they are such a great family. And we are praying for them just that God would bless them and use them. We're just praying for the president. We know how difficult his job is. And we just ask God would do great things. And I remember sitting there, just my mouth was just open. I'm like, oh my goodness, somebody finally said something kind. You know what I mean? Like truly kind. And it was just so gracious and good and genuine. And, And again, I guarantee you, they don't agree with the man at all. But they said something so gracious. And I thought, see, that's why I like the show. Their witness is so sound. They don't pick silly fights. They make sure the main thing is the main thing. Now, does this mean there's never a time, you never say anything that might be construed as difficult to say? No, I don't think it means that. But I think what it does mean is because of the culture we live in and the time we're populating, uh, we need to first try to exercise restraint. Right? 
And, and, and then if we need to go beyond that, I think we go to the individual we may have an issue with. Now, again, I know you can't go to officials and politicians, but this brings it now into our culture, into our community, our city, our world, where we go, as much as I don't want to speak evil of those I'm never even going to see, much less, uh, how more, or rather, how much more should then I do it in my city where I'm going to see these people? So I don't want to speak evil of people in my community. I don't want to gossip about them. I don't want to undermine them. I don't want to try to create some kind of mob against them, kind of underground socially. If there's an issue, I'll restrain. If it's really serious, I'll go to them personally because I care. Right? That's the real issue then, even going personally. But it's not saying evil. It's not doing anything that would undermine. Because again, you'll, you'll, you'll gain traction with that. Another thing Paul says is to avoid quarreling. Literally to be peacemakers. Creating peace is hard. Keeping the peace is easy if you have a gun. All right? um, making peace is difficult. And so work hard to avoid the quarrels. In fact, I can think of one for me, that kind of merges even politics, yet trying to reach somebody and being sensitive to that. There was a guy I worked with years ago. His name was Scott. When I was uh, working for uh, what is now Office Depot, it was originally called Office Club. And I was really reaching out to everybody at work. And Scott was one of the guys I was really trying to reach out to and making a concerted effort and everything else. And then one day in the break room, there was an article on affirmative action. And he said something about affirmative action in the positive. And I'm like, come on, man, that's just racism. And that's, you know, all this stuff. And we got into this argument. And then, you know, by the end of it, I realized that all of the work I had put into trying to articulate the gospel to Scott was now dead because of this issue of arguing about affirmative action. Now, I didn't mention that Scott was also black, right? Um, dumb fight, all right? Uh, very dumb fight. For him, it was a d- deeper issue. It was altogether different. I was looking at it very analytical, and this is just this. And, and, and because I picked that battle, I, I, I lost a war. And so that's where sometimes quarreling just doesn't suit us well. And so we want to make sure that we're not doing that. In fact, Paul says to be gracious. To be gracious and to show perfect courtesy, right? Or gentleness, literally, toward all people. Um, as I thought about this, uh, I, I thought about a scene uh, that I've seen in the last couple of weeks. I want to bring up this next picture. Um, I don't know if you've seen this scene, but in the current hearings on the exemption issues for the Catholic Church and things like that related to the health care plan, um, I'm not, I don't, that issue is not my issue. And also, if you're like, oh, is he going to weigh in on that now? This guy won't shut up about politics today. Um, no, I'm not, that's not my issue. My, my issue is I'm, I'm looking at this. And I go, okay, so here are the clergy that the church has to offer up, right? And I'm, I'm watching them, and none of them are smiling. None of them seem to exude the joy of the Lord. It's like now they're in the spotlight. This is the opportunity to showcase who we are, why our gospel matters, and we're concerned about something. But instead of really having that, it seems to be just some grumpy dudes, I mean, honestly, for the first time in my life, I'm like, where's Joel Osteen when we need him? I mean, like, honestly, I mean, this is not me, but I'm like, we need that guy. I mean, just put him on the end next to Bishop Lori. That dude is never happy. You know what I mean? Like, Joel could be like, dude, dude, smile. Just be happy. God loves you. You know, I mean, like, that would be great. Right? Not happening. Not happening. 
Now, do I understand the issue? Yes, I understand the issue. But what the message seems to be is we're ready to fight. And again, I just kind of go, man, when you got the spotlight on you, showcase your strengths. Always showcase your strengths and your strengths or the gospel. In fact, I would go a step further and say, uh, just something to keep in mind, persecution never hurt the gospel anyway. Because that's how this is getting kind of promoted. This is persecution. Well, persecution never hurt the gospel. You not want to know what hurts the gospel? People refusing to preach it because they get focused on other things. Outsiders can never stuff the gospel. Insiders can just stop preaching the gospel and preaching other things. And so Paul says, be gracious, right? In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it says, you must worship Christ Jesus as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. He says, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. He says, then if people speak evil against you, they will be ashamed for what they see in your life, what they see that it is good and how you live because you belong to Christ. Posture your life for the gospel. Love your city and culture for the gospel. Hold your tongue on lesser things so that you can unleash your tongue to the one most important thing. That's the big idea. And in this, believe that the gospel changes things. So here's some tips. Just a few things. One, uh, just always remember that you're a sinner saved by grace. When you start to look at some segments of culture and go, man, they're pretty, pretty perverse. They're pretty debaucherous. They're pretty uh, greedy. They're whatever it is. Just remember. And so were we at one time. And we still may struggle with that. I think that's the other thing, being honest. You know, part of the times when people see us as hypocrites is only if we come across as self-righteous. If we come across as just realizing, hey, I'm very human. I needed a savior because I am a hypocrite. They're like, oh, okay, cool. That's awesome. It was interesting, I did a wedding yesterday and the mother of the bride came up to me and said, a lot of my non-Christian friends were here and they all commented on how you seem to be like a regular human being. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, I, wow, I didn't, I didn't know we came across as so non, as clergy, like the picture, right? I mean, they're watching the news like, those dudes are all robots, you know? Um, but, but just, yeah, being real, being authentic, right? Realizing that, hey man, we're still on a journey, we're figuring it out. And then the last thing I'd say is realize ultimately in the end, um, you're just the mailman. You're just the mailman. You, you deliver bulk mail, right? That's the gospel. Gospel is bulk mail, right? So you think about there was a, a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. And he says a, a sower went out to uh, sow some seed, right? And so the way this would be done is you'd have a sower takes a, a bag full of seed, and he just goes out to his property, right? And, and he knows that his job is just to cast the seed. You know, that's his mission. That's his job. And so it's going to go in all sorts of directions. And he doesn't really control where it goes. And so in my bag, I've got some fun stuff because it's the gospel. I have lifesavers. All right. So we have lifesaver gummies. Uh-oh, that's high. People are like, I need a helmet. All right, so I guess things are happening. If anybody loses an eye, I'm sorry. Right? But this is, this is what you do. I got somebody way in the back row. Sarah, I can't get to you. That's gonna, it's going to hurt people. <laughs> right? So this is what I do. I just take and it just goes. 
It just goes. My job. I'm sorry about that eye. All right. My job. My job is not to precisely put it here, put it there. I just cast. Now, some of you are going to look at this and you go, lifesaver gummies. I hate these. You're not going to want it. And others, you're going to open it up here, eat one or two. And then that was okay. I don't think I'll eat the rest. And others are going to say, oh, these are awesome. I'm going to buy them from all my friends. 30, 60, or 100, right? But that's all you do. You just cast it. You don't control where it goes. You don't control how people respond. Some of you are going to love it. Some of you are going to hate it. Some of you are indifferent to it. It doesn't matter because you're just the mailman that delivers the bulk mail. That's what you do. That's our calling. Let the one thing be the big thing and the chief thing. In other words, for all of us, just share Jesus. Just share Jesus. Right now, I just want you to bow your heads. And as you do so, I, I, I speak to two different clans. Um, the first are those of us who are convinced. We're convinced. Well, if we're convinced, then I pray that we are convinced of the fact that the gospel changes everything. And that we just want to sow bulk mail. And that God would use us in that way. And that we would be a lover of those who are estranged from God as opposed to adversarial to those who are estranged from God. And there may be some of you in the room this morning and you don't know Jesus. You're hearing the gospel and you go, yes, I need that. Today, as Paul says, is the day of salvation. This is what the Bible talks about. Today is the day. Where you, right where you're at, you can make it a simple prayer, which is, Jesus, I know you died for my sins. I have been estranged from you. And I want to be right with you. So forgive me. I repent. I need you and I desire to follow you. If you make that your prayer right where you're at, he says, you're my kid, you're adopted, you're in, you're saved. And if you made that your decision today, I would love to know about it or anybody with a name tag uh, around their neck that says elder, they would love to know about it. If you have any questions, please ask us so that we can even more so give you some sense of encouragement and point you in a direction into a regroup getting plugged into the church Jesus I thank you for salvation I thank you for your gospel I thank you that it's the one thing that changes everything and I pray that we believe it I pray that no greater conviction we would have than that conviction that everything else would be subservient and, and, and really informed by the gospel we love you we praise you we thank you in your good name Amen.